Well, welcome. Glad to see you guys again. Uh, if, you, if this is a first time or first time in a long time, uh, we started a series back in the fall on the life of Jesus Christ from eternity past all the way to eternity still future. And so we're going to jump back into that again this morning. And if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 13. That's where we're going to be picking it up. We've, we've turned a corner here in our series a little bit. We're getting into the parables of Jesus Christ, which is essentially the teaching ministry of Jesus. We were already looking at that in the Sermon on the Mount. However, the parables are very unique because he's going to be using a lot of things that he sees. Uh, in our everyday lives to explain and communicate these deep spiritual truths. And so we're turning the corner into this, and we're getting in this section just after what we talked about last week, where Jesus is beginning to describe what the kingdom of heaven is actually like. He does it in four different parables. We're going to be looking at the third of four today, uh, specifically the surprising nature of the kingdom of heaven. Now, as I talk about surprises, how many of you would say, okay, I love, I'm the kind of person I love surprises. Right, you love it when your spouse gives you a surprise. Uh, Notice in the first row, I was like, yeah, I think you and me are kind of the only ones, I think. But there's not a whole lot. Um, how many of you are kind of like, I hate surprises. Whatever you do, don't surprise me. You kind of, you gave your list to your spouse and your friends, and you're like, okay, this is what I want you to buy me for birthday and Christmas and stuff like that. Um, surprises are kind of a mixed bag, right? It kind of depends on what the surprise is to f- figure out hey, if you really like it or not. Uh, never forget, about six years ago, Kat and I were on our way to Austin, Texas. We were celebrating our 10-year, um, it was our 10-year wedding anniversary at that time. And so we were traveling down to Austin, Texas, and uh, it was one of these, we, another friend of ours was getting married at the time. And so we were going to take an entire weekend to celebrate our anniversary together. And so we made the deal, okay, we're not getting each other gifts this year, the whole trip. The weekend is going to kind of be our celebration gift to each other, that kind of a deal. Well, we're driving down to Austin, and she turns to me, and she goes, uh, so I just want to let you know I got you a little surprise. And I was like, no, 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 no. Now, as a husband, you got to understand, like, that's not what you want to hear. When you already make the deal that you're not doing presents and stuff like that, you don't want to hear that, you, that they went and got a present. Like, that's just, okay, that's a fight. It's going to happen a little bit later on, that kind of a deal, right? And so I'm going, oh, you got to be kidding me. So, all right, fine. And she's like, don't worry about it. I made it. It's really not a big deal. And I wasn't expecting anything else. I was like, okay, you made me something? I don't know. That doesn't typically go well either. So, um, <laughs> Anyway, so we, we get to Austin, and we're pulling in and stuff, and she goes, okay, I need you to get dressed up because I got us a photographer. We're doing family pictures. And I was like, what? I was like, my big surprise, I, my big surprise is you're, you're doing, we're getting pictures together and stuff like that. And I was so disappointed. I couldn't even hide it or anything like that. I was like, this is your, it felt like early on in a marriage when I got her a big screen TV and a DVD player for her birthday, right? You know what I'm talking about? I'm like, hey, this is what you've always wanted, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like photography was just not the thing that I was pumped about. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. I got to get all dressed up now. It's not what you want to do on your 10th anniversary. And so you're like, okay. Um, So anyway, we get ready and photographer comes to the door and I'm in a bad mood, right? I'm just in a bad mood at that point in time. I'm like, this is not, this is lame. Everything about it is lame. And, um, And so photographer comes to the door and he opens up, and I thought we were going to go out on the premises. Like, the, this campus of this hotel we were at was a really beautiful place. And Kat's like, no, 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 why don't you just come in here? We'll do some pictures here together on the couch while you're opening up a couple gifts and stuff, and we'll just do some pictures here. And I was like, Ser-? like I was like, babe, this hotel room's terrible. This is, there's, nothing, there's nothing beautiful about it. And, but I was already in a bad mood, so we kind of went, we, we, we went with it. And I sat down, and she gives me the first present. And, and I open it up, and, and I'm not kidding you, it's a framed picture of us when we were engaged. And it was a picture that I already owned, right? Like we already had it. And it was already like in our home and stuff like that. 
And I'm like, yay, it's what I've always wanted, a picture that I already have of us that I've already seen. Thanks. And she's like, you jerk, just stop being a jerk, right? And I was like, yay, thank you. I was really not being pastoral in the time. Um, <laughs> or even saved, at that matter. But uh, so, and so I was like, okay. So she goes, just turn it over. I turned it over on the back. It just says, first comes love. And it's a picture of us as it being engaged. And I was like, okay, eh, all right. And I uh, still wasn't feeling it at the time. And then the next one comes. You guys are a little quicker than I am. So like the, <laughs> so the second one comes. I open up that gift and, and everything, and it's us on our wedding day. She's in the beautiful gown and everything. And, and I was like, hey, all right, another picture of us that I already have, and it's already in our home and stuff. like. She's like, turn it over. And I was like, all right, then comes marriage. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's great. And she goes, put them next to each other. And I was like, first comes love, then comes marriage. And I was like, guys, I went to A&M. It takes me a little longer to get, get, like, pick up a few things. <laughs> and so I'm going, first comes love, then comes marriage. So I was like, oh, my gosh. And I grabbed that next present. And I'm not kidding. I just opened that up. And I'm, not, I'm staring at the sonogram of my son, right? And I'm just staring at this thing. And I know you can't imagine this, but I, like, I wept. Like, <laughs> Like, it's just one of those, like, overwhelming things. I open it up, and just, just first comes love, and then comes marriage, and then comes something about a baby, and uh, I don't know what it was. It's just one of these just overwhelming things, and the, the photographer's there the whole time just capturing every bit of it, just like she knew what she was doing the entire time. And like, the reason that I share that story is because the parable we're going to look at today, like, Jesus is going to say that that's kind of what his kingdom is like. It's incredibly unassuming at the beginning. It's not something that you ever saw coming. It's one of these things that's hidden in the very beginning. But, but once you begin to open up your eyes and you begin to discover the fullness of its beauty and everything that, that Jesus came to actually do, it's one of those surprises that just overwhelms you with an abundant amount of joy. And so that's what I want to kind of get at this morning in, this, in, these just first, in these few verses here in this parable is essentially the surprising beauty of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, for you and me. Let's take a look at it, verse 44. Here's how Jesus describes it. He says this. He says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's hidden in the field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy, he went and he sold everything that he had in order to purchase that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who's out there looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and he sold everything that he had in order to purchase it. So we've got two really, really similar stories here that are very similar in nature, but they're not making the exact same point. The first story, a man's just kind of out in a field, and he's, he's stumbling around, and, and maybe he's digging or something like that, and he just stumbles into this, uh, this beautiful treasure. We have no idea how he does it. We don't know why he's digging in someone else's backyard, right, probably illegal or something like that. But um, he discovers this treasure, and in his joy, he goes and he sells everything that he has in order to purchase that field so that he can legally obtain the treasure that's there. Um, essentially, kind of what we're seeing here in verse 44 is, is pretty much every child's dream, right? I, I don't know if you guys dreamed about this as a child, but like uh, I, I, my brother and I, we actually dug up our backyard one time looking for treasure. We just watched Unsolved Mysteries, I think it was. There were these gangsters that buried all their treasure in a backyard and some people out in Wisconsin or something like that. Like they found it randomly. And so we're like, we're going to do this. We're going to solve uh, all of our family's problems. And we literally dug up our backyard. Mom comes home and she's pretty ticked off about the whole thing, but but like, that's what you want to do. I, I, I wanted that experience of, of, of finding joy and finding treasure. Uh, evidently, back in Jesus' day, this isn't that unusual, right? Okay, this is a time when they didn't have banks. 
They, they didn't take all their money and go drop it off a bank to keep safe or anything like that. Um, instead, they took all their treasure, all their family heirlooms and their joys and their money and stuff like that. They would bury it in a field so no one would know where it actually was. That way, robbers or thieves that would come to the home looking for things to steal, they wouldn't have anything that was actually there to steal. And it was a fantastic plan, except for the fact that a lot of people ended up dying prematurely, and they never had a chance to tell people where their treasure was buried. And so as Jesus is telling this story, again, he's pulling on very real uh, things that are taking place around them. And this is a thing that, that people are going to be leaning into at this point because they all know the hope and they all know the joy of potentially finding such a treasure in their land or in their backyard or something like that. Um, the second story that he shares is very, very similar to this first one, except for um, a, a minor detail, which is actually not minor at all. Uh, he says that the kingdom of heaven is not like the treasure, essentially. He says that the kingdom of heaven this time is like a wealthy merchant who also went and found treasure, and he also sold everything that he had in order to purchase that treasure. Uh, we're going to talk about that one here in just a little bit, but, but right off the bat, what Jesus is doing, he's making two really, really important points about his kingdom. Uh, number one is that his kingdom initially is very hidden, right? It's very subtle, and it's very unassuming by nature. In other words, the beauty of the kingdom, when you and I look at it immediately, uh, we may not see it because it's not immediately seen. Um, it's why so many people in Jesus' day, they missed out on Jesus. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah, the promised King of kings and the Lord of lords. They didn't believe he was the promised one from the Old Testament and things of that nature because Jesus in his own nature and in his own flesh, he did not look very kingly. It's just not how he came, right? He, he was born of a virgin to the poorest of the poor. He was a carpenter by trade, not a politician or anything like that. Uh, he never led an army. He never won an election, and he never got any awards or anything like that. Um, this is one of the few things that Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, they actually got right about Jesus' character. You guys love this movie? Anybody ever seen this movie right here? One of the greats of all time. Uh, I don't typically recommend movies for theology, that kind of a deal. They, they nailed it on this particular point and probably this particular point alone. But the whole movie is about the search for the Holy Grail, which is essentially the cup uh, that Jesus used around the, Lord's, uh, around the Last Supper. And so, again, final scene, they find it. Uh, they're in this cave, and this cave is filled with a bunch of potential grails. And um, you remember this scene. The bad guy goes first. I got a picture of it right here. The bad guy goes first, and um, he's trying to find this holy grail. And so he looks around the room, and he finds the grail that's, the, uh, that's plated in gold, plated in rubies and diamonds and emeralds and things of that nature. And he grabs that cup, and he essentially looks at it, and he says, this is the cup of the king of kings. And, of course, you remember what he does, too. He goes he, over to the fountain of, I don't know, whatever it was. He dips it in the water, and uh, he drinks of it. And you remember what, it's, it's that terrifying scene. He just disintegrates in front of everybody and, like, blows away in ashes. And then, of course, the creepy old man who's been there his entire life, he stands up and he says, ah, he has chosen poorly. <laughs> right? You remember that? See, like, like, that's the greatest line ever. Like, the dude's been sitting there by himself forever. And then that's his one powerful line right there. He chose poorly. Um, and, of course, Indiana Jones at this time, he's kind of, okay, what do I do with this, right? I, there's a whole bunch of potential grails to choose from. And then he remembers, okay, well, Jesus, he didn't come like that. He was a lowly carpenter. And he looks around the room, and he finds the most simple grail that's there, and he grabs it, and he picks it up, and he says this. This is the cup of a carpenter. And he goes over to this well, which is supposed to be eternal life. Again, bad theology right there. But anyway, he goes over to this cup, and he dips it in the water, and he drinks it. And he's able to heal his father and stuff. And, of course, the knight looks at him and he goes, ah, you've chosen very, very wisely. And, of course, the point that I'm making here is, like, that's how Jesus came. 
Like he was unassuming in everything that he did. He didn't come with flash. He didn't come with gold and pearls and jewels and diamonds and rubies and things like that. He came in simplistic form, born of a virgin to the poorest of the absolute poor. In fact, Isaiah is going to describe it like this. I love this. He says, Jesus had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. There was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and he was rejected by mankind. He was a man of suffering and a man familiar with pain. Uh, He was like one from whom people hid their faces because he was despised and he was held in low esteem. I want you to think about that for a second. Can you imagine if you're the, the God of all creation? Like you're the king of kings, the lord of lords. You spoke and literally the universe was created. You had all the power and authority in the world. And you were condescending from heaven to take on flesh. I want you to imagine that you had the opportunity to choose your own physical body. You had the opportunity. Do you remember that game you played? If you could change anything about yourself, what would it be? Like you could literally do that. You could do whatever it is that you wanted to do. You could choose your own circumstances. Wouldn't you choose something probably a little bit closer to like Tim Tebow, Chuck Norris, the Rock, something like that. Like, aren't you, isn't that kind of what you're going to go for? Like, aren't you going to choose something that's, like, beautiful that people are going to be naturally attracted to? Aren't you going to choose circumstances where that people want to be there? I mean, isn't that what we typically follow? Can you imagine the, the kind of following that you would have if you had the ministry of Jesus and you had the looks of, of uh, I'm not even going to go there. I can't even go there. But, like, if you had, like, beautiful looks and, and you had the success and you had the charisma, And you had all these different things that we follow on Instagram and social media and things like that that we naturally love in and of ourselves. And what I'm saying is like it's just not how Jesus Jesus came to to establish his kingdom. It's not the way that he chose to come and reveal who he was because his kingdom is not just about these physical things. Although that will still come at some point in the future. Like his kingdom is not just about the things that we come and it's not just about the peripherals and the, and the, the, the beauty and the things that are around him. It's a spiritual kingdom that he's coming to bring in the here and now through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit by which he resurrects that which was dead and brings life to those things. It's why the people uh, that he surrounds himself, his disciples and his church, like even those people right there, they're not exactly kingly. You look around at the disciples and, and, and they weren't the esteemed people that are going to gain him a lot of prestige and a lot of uh, notoriety and things like that. Like we're talking about fishermen and we're talking about a religi- religious zealot that nobody liked. And we're talking about a, a tax collector that people despised. That's who the disciples were. And then Paul's going to describe the church who he's working through today, you and me. He's going to describe it like this in 1 Corinthians 1. He's going to say, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. And then he's going to say, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential people. Not many of you were noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world in order to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world in order to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not in order to nullify the things that are. Church, like that's who he chose to build his church. That's who he chose to fill with his Holy Spirit and to bring about the greatest revival that the world has ever seen in the first and second century. Like that's who he chose to use, just a bunch of weak and lowly, insignificant, unkingly kind of people. And what I'm saying is like this is still a problem for people today. This is still the reason why so many people are missing out on the hidden beauty of the kingdom of heaven today. I love the way C.S. Lewis described this in in Screwtape Letters. You're looking for a great book to read. Um, This is a fictional account of a senior demon 
essentially writing letters to a junior demon his, uh, named Wormwood, essentially. And, uh, and he's writing these letters to instruct them on how to go and essentially cripple the church and the people that he was uh, assigned to hurt and things of that nature. So uh, fictional account of different letters. And the second letter, he writes this. Check this out. He says, play up the disappointment that, that he feels in the church. Make him notice that the voices are out of tune around him. Make him notice the odd clothes that people are wearing, the cheap Christian jewelry, how so many of them are, un are overweight and unattractive. If you do, he says, he'll believe that because some of these people look so ridiculous, that the religion of these people must also be ridiculous. And I love that quote because like, that's exactly how he's working still today, right? This is still a thing. It's the reason why somebody, maybe even some who come in here today, you're looking around, you're pulling up in the parking lot, you're seeing the bumper stickers or maybe the, the weird Christian t-shirts that we wear, or maybe you're still mad about our music from the 80s or something like that. And, and like this is a major obstacle for you coming to faith and you're kind of looking around. Maybe you even look at the church and you're kind of going, okay, I know the specific hypocrisy of that person over there. And I know what that person did this weekend and I know what's happening in that person's home. And you're looking at the brokenness of the church and you're kind of going, like, I know these different things and everything about it is completely unimpressive. There's no way in the world the God that they represent can also then be true. Church, it's the reason why so many people today are still walking away from the faith and they're saying things like, okay, yeah, we really like this Jesus that you talk about. We just don't like the church. We don't like the gathering. We don't like the people. Like, we've seen the people. We don't like the organization of religion. We don't like people coming together with a plan. We don't like uh, these people over here that are very whiny. We don't like the way that they vote over here. We don't like the things that they stand for over here. We don't like this, that, and the other. They're really weird. We don't like this, that, and the other. The church is filled with hypocrites. And what Jesus is trying to show us right here is that it is just the way that he does things. It's just the way that he does things. Like, he doesn't give up on the hypocrites. Like, he doesn't give up on the lowly and, and the broken people. He chose the foolish things of this world in order to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world in order to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world in order, and the despised things of the world and the things that are not uh, to nullify the things that they are because his kingdom is not like any kingdom that you and I have ever seen. Like, his kingdom is not a reward for the capable. His kingdom is a gift that empowers the incapable. Like, that's what it is. It is the entire realm of physical and spiritual blessing that you and I get to receive uh, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ underneath his rule and his reign. That's what it is. He's talking about the entire realm of physical and spiritual blessing that he came to bring in the here and now, which largely is spiritual right now and physical still to come. So bottom line, church, at the very beginning of this parable, like, don't miss out on the unbelievable joy of his kingdom simply because you're looking a different direction. Like, don't miss out on the beauty of what Jesus came to do, everything that he came to bring, simply because you're expecting something else in return. Don't come in and, and miss out on what he did because you're expecting $200,000 Lamborghinis or, or, or this, that, and the other, or mansions and beauty and physical uh, things of that nature. Don't miss out on those things. Church, this entire thing is about the joy that is received in the kingdom of heaven. And it's about the surprising joy that's found in this simple, unassuming kingdom which Jesus came to bring. I mean, that's what he says. Verse, verse 44, when the man found it, it says that he hid it once again. And here's the key phrase. In his joy, he went and he sold everything that he had to legally purchase that land. 
In other words, like whatever it is that he discovered about the kingdom, he was so overjoyed that he's willing to sell everything that he had. He's willing to give up all of his rights to his land, to his clothes, to his cars, to his camels, to whatever it may be at that point in time. He's willing to give it all up that he may obtain what he just discovered about the beauty of this kingdom. Church, I have to ask this question. Has that been your experience with the Lord Jesus Christ? Like, has that been your experience as you've embraced his kingdom, you've come into this awareness of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is joy the thing that's at the top of your, of, of your list of adjectives which describes your experience with the Lord Jesus Christ? Because if a lot of us are being really, really honest about it, you're kind of going, okay, I don't really get joy. I get that those, are those denominations over there, like I'm much more of the thinker, I'm much more of this, that, and the other, but joy is not really my thing. I understand duty. I understand routine. I understand um, these things over here. I understand doing the same thing. I understand the beauty of a community. I understand uh, obligation. I understand ritual. I understand religion. But I, I, I don't understand this joy that people talk about so much. I mean, for the longest time, this, has been my, this was my experience growing up in the church. Like I've told you before, like I grew up in the church and I came to genuine saving faith at a young age, but, but it was a long time before I discovered the joy of knowing Jesus. I remember coming into the church and, and seeing people just raise their hands in worship. And I'm kind of going like, why are you doing that? And I remember thinking it was just about like they wanted to be seen. Uh, they wanted to be lifted up or something like that. And I was like, why would you be happy about singing these songs? These are, these are terrible songs. This was the 80s, right? And I remember going in there and thinking, okay, like why in the world are people going to these third world countries where life is difficult? They're selling everything that they have right here in Texas, which is awesome. And they're choosing to go do all these things. Like why in the world would anyone do that? I'm with my parents at the grocery store, and like mom is, is making me chase down other people in order to, to go and, and share the gospel with them. I'm not kidding. We would sit in line, and she'd be like, hey, you need to stop that lady because God wants me to go talk to that lady. And I go stop to this lady, and, and I'm not kidding, divine appointments left and right. And she goes share the gospel and just pray with these people in the grocery store. And it was just left and right. Dad is waking up at 2 o'clock in the morning to pray for his family and the missionaries that they were supporting left and right. And I did not understand the joy of what they were doing. Why in the world would anybody do that? Because for the longest time, like, I understood the religion. I understood the things that we were supposed to do. For me, I thought about church kind of like school. It was one of these things that, that I knew was probably good for me. I probably needed to go. And in the end, I'd probably be better for it. I didn't know why. Because when I was looking at the church and I was looking at what we were doing, like, the only thing that I could see were the rules and the regulations that were in front of me that were designed to steal my joy. That's what I thought. Like, these rules and these regulations, what we're doing, like, this is because Jesus hates you. And because God is this, is, this, is this old stoic nun who wants to slap your, slap your wrist with the ruler and just steal and kill your, your joy. I mean, isn't that how we think about it today? That, that, that if I could just be free of all these oppressive structures, all the different restrictions that are around my life, then and only then will I actually be able to find joy. I love the way Woody Allen describes it like this. He says, the heart wants what it wants. And if you deny what you want, meaning you impose certain guidance or restriction on you, then, then you're betraying your heart and you'll never truly be happy. Church, is that not the way that we think about joy today? I mean, you, like, like joy is found when you follow your heart to its greatest end. All you got to do is just follow your heart wherever it takes you and leads you. Then you'll find true joy. And it sounds awesome. It sounds right. It makes for a great TV show and some movies and things of that nature until you start doing it. And then all of a sudden you realize, okay, wait a second, like, my heart can actually be deceitful. It can actually be full of wickedness. And it can actually lead me to a million other places that I thought would bring me joy, which 
are actually leading me into brokenness and destruction, not only for me, but for people that I loved all around me. Like, I love the way that Tim Keller explains that he's essentially just saying that joy is not simply found by following your heart, but joy is a matter of design, right? And I think we get this, right? Like, it's not a matter of, of just following your heart and just seeing where it leads. Like, joy is always a matter of your design. And he describes it like this. He's describing, he's kind of commenting on some things that C.S. Lewis wrote. But he says, catching a fish and tossing him in the woods is not the same thing as setting it free, is it? Right? Of course not. Like, no matter how bad a fish may want to be on the land, you're killing him. Fish are most free and most filled with joy when they're in the water where they were designed to flourish. Church, we get this, right? Like, joy, it's a matter of design. It's not a matter of following your heart, following your intuitions. It's a matter of how you were designed to flourish. It's why you and I gave up on eating the same way that we did when we were 18 years old, right? It's why we have resolutions every single year, and we're still trying to get this whole thing like, um, kind of under control. Right? We get that we can't eat the same way we did when our metabolism was like that of a cheetah. Right? I, I long for those days. I pray for those days. Um, like I hate our high schoolers today. They can do whatever they want to. And I, I, Don't you long for that, that time when you can eat pizza at midnight. You can go eat ice cream anytime that you want, candy bars, sodas, whatever it may be. And like, like that's the thing that brought you so much joy. I mean, you do that today and bad things happen. Right? Like you put on weight. You're tired. Uh, you're in physical pain all the time. Right? Like it, it just hurts. It's not quite the same thing. Why? It's a matter of design. Like that's not how we were designed to flourish. And it's exactly what Jesus is getting at right here at the church. Like you and I have been designed in such a way that our greatest joy will ultimately be found in him. We have been designed in such a way that our greatest joy will be when we, when we find the fullness of our life fully in him. We're going to discover this beauty about the kingdom of heaven and about the kingdom of this king who offers himself to us. And there's going to be no greater joy that we find. We're going to be willing to sell whatever it may be around us that we may, under, that we may apprehend more and more of the joy that he's giving to us right there. It's why he's going to say in Psalm 95, he's going to say, come let us sing for joy. Let us sing, uh, let us shout joyfully to who? The rock of our salvation. Come, let us, let us sing for joy. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. In other words, church, uh, this whole thing is not about the rules. It's not just about the regulations and about the rules. Like it's always been about the person. That's who, that's who he is. He's the rock of our salvation who loved us in the middle of our wandering so much that he sent his one and only son that you and I may be saved. From beginning to end, church, like it's always been about the person. He's the kinsman, redeemer, and Ruth who came to repair and redeem. He's a suffering servant in Isaiah who forgives us of our sins. He's the faithful husband in Hosea who will never give up on his people. He's the obedient prophet, not like Jonah, who actually went to his enemies and loved his enemies in the middle of their evil. He's Emmanuel, God with us, who promises to never leave us nor forsake us. He's the good and loving father of the gospels who loves to give good gifts to the children that he loves. He's the indwelling Holy Spirit in Acts who empowers us every day. He empowers the incapable and makes us more and more capable. He is the great high priest in Hebrews who is able to sympathize with our pain because he too experienced pain. And he's the king of all kings in Revelation who promises to come back and to make all things brand new. But the beauty of this parable is like he's also here in this parable. Like verse 45, like he is the merchant that was out there looking for pearls. That's who he is. Like the merchant isn't us, church. Like, like we are, we're the ones, we're the hapless people in verse 44 that happen to come across treasure. 
We weren't even looking for it. We stumbled upon it. We didn't deserve it. We weren't chasing after it. And in the middle of that place, we happened to discover, we happened to discover treasure. But church, like in verse 45, he is the merchant that was out there looking for pearls. And then all of a sudden he discovered you. And then he discovered me. And we were the pearl that was, that was lowly and despised. Nothing beautiful, nothing natural about us also to attract anyone to us. And in the middle of that place, he thought us so valuable that he's willing to not only send his son Jesus, but sell him off that we may be purchased by his blood and completely redeemed that you and I may spend eternity with him forever and evermore. Church, like that's the beauty of the kingdom of heaven. Like it's not just about this kingdom and it's not just about the things that you and I receive from the kingdom. It's not about the peripherals and things of that nature. The beauty of the kingdom is that he also gives you the access to the king. He gives you his presence. He gives you himself. It's not just a treasure that you're to discover that's gonna make your life better. He's the merchant who goes after searching for pearls. And even in the middle of our depravity, in the middle of our sin, in the middle of our wandering, in the middle of our unloveliness, he thought us so valuable that he's willing to send his one and only son, Jesus, to condescend from heaven, to sell everything that he had in order to purchase us by his blood, that we could be brought near and have fellowship with the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Church, the beauty of the kingdom is not just about a kingdom out there. The beauty of the kingdom is that he gives you the king. He gives you the king. And in his presence is the fullness of joy. That's what I didn't understand when I was a kid. In the infant stages of my faith, I'm looking around kind of going, why are you singing and enjoying it? Why are you giving everything away for the, for the building of this church like it's just organized religion? Why would you do that? Why would you go on these trips and why would you have these awkward conversations in the grocery store? Like, why would you get up at 2 in the morning to pray and to spend time with the Lord? Like, it took me years to discover the joy of knowing Jesus, church. And I'll never forget it. There's, it's not this thing that you can fully describe. It was late in sophomore year, and I come back from this retreat where God got a hold of my affections, and just everything changes. You come back, and you start opening up the Word of God, not because you have to, not because you're being tested on it, not because there's a sword drill in Sunday school class or something like that, but you're just devouring the truth of God's word because that's where you go to see Jesus. And you open it up and you just begin to savor God's word, just reading and reading and reading. And then coming before him with bold access to the Father through the Holy Spirit in prayer and to just be able to come and pray. Not because you had to or even wanted anything, simply because we could. Like it's the joy of discovering Jesus. And what I'm saying is it's so much different than religion. It's so much different than, than this obligation and this ritual that you go through. It is, it is a king that's made himself known. It's the beauty of the kingdom. It's not necessarily the things, although the things that he brings, the spiritual blessing, the physical blessing, all the things that he does for you, beautiful, beautiful things, and they all pale in comparison to knowing the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords, church. It is the beauty of the kingdom, and it'll surprise you when you find it. You had no idea it was out there. It's not what you were looking for. But once you discover it, you're going, how can I hold on to anything else? Why wouldn't I give this away? Why wouldn't I walk away from this thing that I can have more of Jesus, more of his beauty, more understanding who he is, more of his power in my life right now? How can I hold on to anything else? I love the way Nehemiah puts it. He says, 
uh, Nehemiah, they're celebrating this time of revival in the land. And he says this, he says, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. They've just come back from captivity. They're being brought in. And, and he says, send some of those things to people who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Don't grieve. Here's why. Because it's the joy of the Lord that's your strength. It's the joy of the Lord that's going to that's gonna sustain you. In other words, church, like he's not against your joy. It's like he, he's, he designed your joy. He knows how to make you flourish. He knows how to bring you life. Like even, even in the laws and the different things and the regulations, like he knows how to bring you life. He designed you. He wants you to have joy. He simply knows that the fullness of your joy and lasting joy will be found when you're finding it in him. And that's what he's wanting you to discover. That like the joy of the Lord will be your strength. That'll be the thing that sustains you every single day. That'll be the thing that strengthens you to endure uh, whatever it is that you're going through. Like that's what joy does. It just, it, it gets you to do things you would not otherwise do. And it changes everything about your, about your reality and the things that you're experiencing. I'll never forget early in the college days, I was living in a house with all of my best friends. And we had this very serious conversation with my buddies. And we were loving college experience. And they were my best, we were having so much fun together. And I remember coming down and being like, boys, I never want to graduate from this place. We need to live here all the rest of our days. Like we just, this is it. We've arrived. This is about as good as it gets. A few weeks later, I meet Kat. Everything changes. <laughs> Everything changes. I remember coming back from one of our first dates. We went to, we went to um, uh, Cheesecake Factory. I was a poor college student. I couldn't even afford dinner, so we split a piece of cheesecake. We got there like 6 o'clock, stayed till closing, right about 11. I still feel terrible for that waiter today. I feel like I owe him an apology or something like that. But like, I remember sitting there and just talking and talking and talking. Like I just lost track of time. And we were just talking, discovering the beauty of who of each other and connecting on a million different things. And like my heart just got raptured with joy. And I came back shortly after that, talked to my roommates, and I was like, guys, I need to graduate as soon as I possibly can because I'm gonna marry that girl. I need to get out of here. I love you guys, but I'm out of here. I'm not hanging around this place forever. Like it's what joy does. That's what joy does. Like, it strengthens you in the day-to-day. It, 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 it carries you. It, it leads you to do things you wouldn't otherwise do. Like, it's the beauty of knowing someone so beautiful. And I want to say this, like, it, it, even in the mundane, even in the day-to-day, like, it's the joy of the Lord that can strengthen you in your mundane day-to-day duties. I don't know if anybody needs to hear that this morning, but I, I came across this quote. Paul Tripp said this. He said, if God doesn't rule your mundane, he doesn't rule you. Because that's where you live every single day. Anybody need to hear that? Like, where's the joy of the Lord in your mundane? I was reading this article this past week from a, from a lady named Gloria Furman. She's a recent graduate of DTS 2010. She's a young mother of four kids under four years old. And uh, she's also the wife of a church planter, American family, that's planting churches in the Middle East. And she's writing in this article about the battle that it was to find joy in the mundane details of life. And see if you can just kind of relate to any of these kinds of things. But she was just talking about the difficulty, number one, of just simply being a mother of four under four, right? Ten loads of laundry every single week, dishes twice a day, four sets of fingernails and toenail clippings each and every week, anywhere from 150 to 200 diapers each week. All right, that's just, in and, wow. So on top of that, 
uh, trying to maintain this level of joy and this, and this character where a husband who's out in the Middle East trying to plant churches is going to come home and actually want to keep returning home and stuff like that. She talks about, um, she talks about the turning point in a relationship with the Lord where she comes home from this conference where God got a hold of her affections and uh, really began to change the way that she thought about the mundane in life. And here's what she wrote. She said this. She says, grace humbles me. That Jesus would allow himself to be led like a lamb to slaughter and not answer those who reviled him, it takes my breath away. That God would send his son to die for me and purchase for me an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. I'm undone by him. Now, the joy of the Lord motivates me and strengthens me to give my time to serve other people in washing their dishes. While looking forward in faith, to hear my Savior say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. As I joyfully and humbly give my time and energy to do the dirty dishes that my family's left behind, I lose nothing and I absolutely gain everything. And the reason I wanted to kind of go there, I, just, I, I wonder if anybody needs to hear that the joy of the Lord can be your strength even in your mundane. May, like maybe this is where some of us are living right now, maybe even in a very literal place. That many kids, something similar to that. Diapers and duty and, and no pun intended. Um, I, that really was no pun intended. Uh, the laundry, the, the cleaning, the, the, the mundane details of life. And maybe it's not necessarily that. Maybe it's a job that you have. And you're kind of caught up in the routine of this thing. And, it, and you feel like it's kind of going nowhere. Maybe you're still stuck in school. You don't really know where that kind of thing is going. And when Nehemiah is saying here is that the joy of the Lord is able to sustain you in those days. Like there's a joy that's able to come from receiving from the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords, from enjoying the middle of his presence that's able to strengthen you in the middle of your day to where you're not necessarily serving the people that you're looking at right in front of your face, but you're actually serving the king of all kings, the one who loved you so much that in the middle of your wandering, he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to come in and to die that you may be purchased and brought back into relationship with him that's able to satisfy you in such a way and bring you so much joy that the mundane details of life are able to be satisfying and also full of joy. And I just wonder if somebody needs to hear that this morning. Maybe it's not necessarily the mundane, but, but also that the joy of the Lord can be your strength in the middle of your trials, in the middle of your difficulty, in the middle of your pain, in the middle of your sadness, in the middle of your loneliness, in the middle of the loss that you're experiencing right now. I love the way that Hebrews talks about Jesus he says this, he says, we don't have such a high priest who's unable to empathize with your weaknesses. In other words, he's better than your wife, he's better than your husband, he's better than your friends, the most empathetic person that you know. We don't have such a high priest that he's unable to empathize with your weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every single way, yet he did so without sin. So let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In other words, church, like he knows that thing that you're going through. That's who he is. It's the beauty of the kingdom. It's not just the things. It's the personal nature of this kingdom that he came to bring. He's giving you the joy of his presence. He's giving you the joy of the presence of a king who knows the pain, knows the difficulty. He knows physical pain, feels like suffered a torturous death upon a cross. Like he knows what loss is like. He knows what it's like uh, to have to, to have people stab you in, the, in, in your back. Like he knows all those different things. And in the middle of that place, it's the joy of the Lord and the kindness of his presence, the beauty of his kingliness that's right there with you, fellowshipping with you every single day. That's able to give you strength. 
every single day. A number of years ago, some of our dear friends went through one of the most trying seasons I could possibly imagine. They just moved to Dallas, Texas from Las Vegas, uh, where he had a fantastic job, and he decided to join the staff of a church where basically he was cutting his whole salary in thirds, <laughs> and uh, he'd just come here. They still had the mortgage from the house in Las Vegas and another mortgage here in Dallas. Finances were a mess. They had one little daughter shortly after she was born. Uh, they were told by their doctor they wouldn't be able to have any, any more children. They went through uh, years of infertility after that first child and the sadness of going through that, trying to go through everything they possibly could in order for that not to be true. And it was just kind of bad news after bad news after bad news. And we're gathering in this prayer meeting one time and we were hearing about these things and we prayed for them. And then all of a sudden one day he comes to us and he says, hey, I've got, he's just overjoyed with news. And he comes and let us, lets us know that his wife has got this miraculous pregnancy going on and that they'd have a baby. And I remember as a staff, we came around them and we celebrated so much. A few months pass and then one day he comes back into that prayer meeting and everything is completely different. You know that look on people's face when like tragedy hits and like all the joy, everything's taken out of their face and it's just like this white shell going on there. And he comes and he tells us that, uh, that they're not just having one baby, they're having twins. But the problem is that those twins are conjoined at the head, meaning Siamese twins together heads. And so he, the doctor came and let him know that the child would not live outside of the womb. And the doctor was coming and telling him, you need to, do, you need to abort this child. And of course, it's not the direction they were going to go. Didn't believe in it. This child is value created in the image of God. And so they just wept. And I remember the staff, we came around them. We wept and we wept and we wept for them. And I remember him just talking about the, the pain of that moment, kind of saying, like can, like, can you imagine, like, this is the thing that National Geographic wants to write stories about. This is the thing, like, they want to take our children and, and like, take pictures and, 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 and sell it to the carnival down the street. Like, that's what we're carrying right there. And he's just overwhelmed with sadness. And I remember shortly after that, his wife decided to start a blog, kind of just talking about very openly how she was processing the grief and, and the trials of what they were experiencing and things like that. And church, I want you to just hear a little bit about how she processed the things that she was going through. Here's what she writes. She says, to give you insight, I've got a picture in my mind of where I am emotionally. It's from Psalm 23, verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. I know that God never calls us to go somewhere that he's never gone before. And I just imagine walking through the valley hand in hand with Jesus. Nothing's said, he just squeezes my hand, reminding me that he's walked this road before. And because he has, the valley is just what it says that it is. It's the shadow of death. Because Christ conquered death on the cross, it's swallowed up in victory. Oh, what the resurrection means to me today. It has always been my hope but it's taken on such a deeper shade of meaning for me now. It's not only my hope, but it's the hope of my little girls. I know that they will go not to death, but to abundant life. And it gives me great peace and great joy that they'll be living the life that I've always looked forward to living. Church, that's the beauty of the kingdom of heaven that we can't bring. It's not just about the things. It's not just about the creature comforts. And it's not just about the inheritance that may still be to come and it's not just about those things. The beauty of the kingdom is that he gives you access to the king. He gives you access to the heart of the father who knows what your pain feels like. 
He knows what it's like to walk through the mundane. He knows what all those things are like. He's the wealthy merchant that was out there looking for pearls. And while he's looking for these beautiful things, he found us. And still in the middle of her wandering and in the middle of our sin, in the middle of our depravity, he looked upon you and me and he thought us so valuable that he's willing to send his one and only son, Jesus, to condescend from heaven, selling every right that he had to the divine life in the heavenlies that you and I may be purchased by his blood, ransomed and brought back home to be able to experience the fullness of joy that's found in him, the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Church, the beauty of the kingdom is that he's given you access to the king. And it's so much better than anything that we could ever get. It's why he says that it's like a treasure that you find. And once you find it and you behold it and you see the fullness of what it is that Jesus came to do, it's worth giving everything in your life away simply to obtain it. Have you discovered that joy in Jesus? Or are we content with religion and the mundane and the ritual? I want to invite you to pray with me.